0: All right, so now we're recording. Um, all right, so my name is Haley. I use she/her pronouns. I'm a junior, and I'm in the LGBTQ social movements in the U.S. class um, with Dr. Kumar. Um, so this is the Colorado Springs LGBTQ Plus Oral History Project. I'm here with Nori June Ross, Reverend Dr. Nori June Ross. Um, would you like to state your full name, your pronouns, any identifications you want to bring up?
1: Oh no, you pronounce my last name right. So that's just always a blessing. Thank you. Nori Rost, she, her, hers. Um, yeah, I think that about covers it.
0: Awesome. Um, and where did you grow up?
1: I was born in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, but moved to Topeka, Kansas when I was about two and a half. So I was raised in Topeka, Kansas.
0: Okay, Wheat Ridge, Colorado.
1: Where is that in Colorado? It's, it's a little, it's, a, it's Denver, essentially. It's one of the many, many suburbs outside of Denver. Yeah. <laughs> like awesome. Aurora, you know.
0: Yeah, um, awesome. And then what, you, what drew you to Colorado Springs?
1: So I was a minister with Metropolitan Community Church. I was on staff at MCC, as it's known, Long Beach, in Long Beach, California. And um, I saw that Colorado Springs had an opening, and that was in 1993, and uh, it was right after this amendment had passed in Colorado, Amendment 2, which essentially made it illegal for state or local or county governments to add sexual orientation to their anti-discrimination clause. So, like if... uh, the utilities company said, we don't discriminate against women uh, on the basis of sex, religion, ethnicity. It was illegal for them to add sexual orientation. And that was passed by the Colorado voters in 1992 by a 52% vote. Um, and of course, I was so demoralizing to the queer community here went everywhere, actually, it was like such a shock. That same year, they actually, Colorado voters actually protected, voted to protect the bears, I think. So protect the bears, but not the queers. So <clears throat> when, uh, when the MCC, Pikes Peak MCC, uh, was looking for a minister, um, I applied for that job and started in January of 1994. And people would often ask me, uh, why on earth would you move from Long Beach, California Colorado Springs like ground zero a hate state and yeah. I would always I would always say two things I would always say Dorothy Day says go where you're least wanted because they're your most needed and if you're going to combat Nazi fundamentalism at least do it in a scenic place so I've been here since January of 1994.
0: Wow and so you just quoted Dorothy Dace? Um
1: Day, D-A-Y Dorothy Day.
0: Dorothy Day all right and who is that
1: he was a uh, founder of the Catholic Workers' Movement, huge uh, union and workers' right advocate uh, in the middle of the last century.
0: And would you say that she's like a role model of yours
1: or do you just like that quote? Oh, she, I, she is a role model in that. I mean, she wasn't gay, she wasn't queer, but uh, but just in terms of that determination to uh, do the work, whether it's popular or not uh, and, to, and to show up in places uh, whether it's dangerous or not, right? You just do the work, so.
0: Yeah, Um, awesome. Yeah, that was a lot of really great info. Um, And then just sort of bringing it back to Colorado Springs, what are some spaces here that you found to be comfortable and welcoming for you um, as like a queer person um, and then also as a minister?
1: So, um, certainly things have changed in the past 27 years. Uh, but uh, when I first got here, there was, uh, you know, MCC was kind of like uh, th- the largest consistent gathering place for people who are queer, uh, and, uh, but we also had a couple of bars, the Hide and Seek, uh, what was that lesbian bar called True Colors, um, and, uh, and a Pride Center that has off and on throughout the years actually had a location where people could, could gather as well. So those are um, comfortable places it Has a queer person. And as a minister, uh, I am um, obviously, and also obviously All Souls, All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church, where I am the minister now and have been for the past 12 years. Um, so that's a, a, a comfortable place to be Has a queer person and has a minister. And uh, there's also a group of, um, of clergy from different, faith traditions that we write a column together in the indie and um, also we do a, a podcast and that's a comfortable place as a minister to get together with those who might have different points of view but where we can we can share and listen to one another without having to be right so
0: wait sorry could you clarify again you had there was a place with clergy that you could meet to like not argue but just share what was that place called
1: it's not a place it's a podcast okay. um that we do it called in good faith and that's also the name of the column in the independent uh where we write from different points of views but and it could be on anything from like you know abortion to the death penalty to you know queer rights black lives matter
0: yeah and um oh this is max he's just
1: yeah hi hi, reverend i just hopped in i was having some technical difficulties but it's very good to see see you see your face um and i'm looking forward to this interview
0: And so you mentioned the column in The Independent and in our preliminary research, we did see some articles on you and articles that you've contributed to as well. Could you speak more about your relationship with The Independent as, you know, a newspaper?
1: You know, uh, The Independent was started by John Weiss to be a, a progressive counterpart to the Gazette, which is notoriously conservative. And and John Weiss uh, is no longer at the helm, but he still has a lot of influence. And it's just a great, you know, it's a great weekly independent free paper uh, that has progressive values. And I just think because of my longevity here, we do have a relationship. They've, you know, they've done an article on me a few years ago. Um, It was like the cover story, the interview that we did. Uh, I was awarded their... um, their award for being a, a LGBTQ plus uh, ally, not really an ally because I am queer, but they working for the LGBT plus uh, movements here in Colorado Springs and being a voice for them. So, um, and then the In Good Faith column, that was uh, really orchestrated by a colleague of mine, Arianna Patton, who's not gay, but um, but she kind of got all these different religious Leaders together to do that. And it's been super fun because for those columns, you only get 125 words to make your point. So, you know, I get really good at using semicolons and contractions to make it all fit in.
0: Yeah. Um, and so, did you mention Mariana Patton? Was that her name?
1: Mariana. Mariana Patton. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, and so just like jumping off of that. Um, Do you and your church, All Souls, Unitarian Universalists, do you guys have any like strong relationships with other uh, churches in the area? And then do you have any not so strong relationships, conflicts with other churches?
1: Well, we have um, strong relationships with the congregational churches in town, First Congo up the street, uh, Pikes Peak MCC, where I used to be the minister, Unity, There's another UU church in town, High Plains. Um, Pretty much all the progressive churches, we have a good working relationship and all the conservative churches, we don't. So we don't have any conflicts, but like for example, there's a downtown ministers association for the ministers of all these historic downtown churches, but All Souls isn't invited because we're not Christian. So um, it's not a conflict, it's just that we're we're not allowed to come play. Even so though we've been even though we've been around since 1891, and we're definitely an yeah. historic church.
0: Um, yeah. So your church, you said was is not Christian, but it but it is a church. Um, just um, um what sort of drew you to that particular faith?
1: So I was with M.C. Pikes Peak MCC, and I was an MCC minister for 20 years, and that is a queer Christian denomination. It was founded in 1968 by Troy Perry, who was a Pentecostal preacher who had gotten kicked out of his faith tradition for being gay. So he um, ultimately started this queer Christian church that still exists um, around the world. And as I said, I was a minister with them for 20 years and very much a Christian, but um, in, a, in, in the further along I got in theological education, the further away I got from Christianity, has, has um, Jesus has the plumb line, right? So, uh, so when I was doing my doctorate of ministry at, at uh, um, the Episcopal School of Theology, which at that time was in Cambridge Mass, and I was doing my whole thesis on, could MCC be a multi-faith church of justice where maybe the name Jesus was never spoken? but it was a Christian church because people did the works of Jesus, right? But a Buddhist could sit next to a Jew, could sit next to a Christian, and it would be Christian because they would do the works of Jesus. And uh, I got my doctorate realizing that no, MCC could not be that church because at its core it remains very Christian. But fortunately there's already a faith tradition that is a multi-faith church of justice and that's Unitarian Universalism. So I like to say I made a UU turn and, uh, and became a Unitarian Universalist in 2008 and, uh, and have been ministered also since that time. And what drew me to that is having um, not a creed, but uh, seven guiding principles that we, no matter what you believe, if you can adhere to these seven guiding principles, then you're welcome. And the first one is the inherent worth and dignity of every human The fourth one is that we're all on a free and independent search for truth and meaning. Your search might look different than mine. The path might be different, but we're each on a a path to look for truth and meaning in our lives. And then the seventh is uh, respect for the interdependent web of existence of which we are all a part. And that really points to the need to care for our planet uh, and recognizing that we're just a part of creation. we're really like a parasitic part of creation, actually, the way we operate in the world. But, you know, the earth isn't ours to use or abuse. It's ours to be in relationship with. So, so those are the you know, three of the, uh, the seven principles that really, they all speak to me. Um, and you can find them at uua.org or on our website, asuuc.net. You can find all seven. But um, that sense of uh, there is no one way Right, And we do, At all souls have Buddhists and pagans and atheists and humanists and, and Christians and um, spiritual but not religious. We have all of those people comprising our community, you know, queer, straight, married, divorced, polyamorous relationships. We've got it all.
0: That's awesome. And what would you say, like, with all these very different people, what are some of the common denominators that bring you guys all together as a community?
1: Uh, A a deep um, reverence for social justice and the desire to act to um, create a more just society. The sixth principle is working toward a global community of justice, peace, and equity. And so we, we have people in our congregation are very committed to doing the work of social justice, not just talking about it, but doing the work. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big commonality. And another is just a healthy respect for diversity. That we actually understand that um, diversity is our strength, and that we actually create a much more fabulous community when we bring all these different parts of who we are into it. And we don't all have to think alike, or act alike, or believe alike.
0: Yeah. Um, and do you draw upon Jesus's teachings at all in your values as a church? Um, or kind of just you know, is there anything valuable in the sort of the Christian element of it?
1: Um, you, know, you know, both Unitarians and Universalists are were born in the Christian tradition, um, in the congregational congregationalist tradition that is the, is the same as the first congregation, <coughs> excuse me, and all the other congregational churches around. So. Universalism split off in the Congregationalists in the 1700s. Uh, they, they, uh, on the on the basis of um, Universalists believe that there is no hell, that you know all roads lead to heaven, that a loving God would accept every you know like if you ever if you have a parent or even a pet, there's really not much that that person your child could do that would make you cast them into a fiery furnace, right? So why would God do that? So that was uh, when the Universalists broke away from the congregationists. And then in the 1800s, um, the Unitarians broke away um, because they don't believe in the Trinity, right? They believe there's one God. They believe Jesus was a really great guy, but he didn't do, you know, he's not the son of God. Thomas Jefferson, excuse me, who actually cut and pasted his own Bible, he cut out all the miracle stories of Jesus and kept just the works of Jesus and uh, you can actually get his version now on Kindle if you want. You can Google Thomas Jefferson Bible and see that he's just really focused on the action of justice, really, which is what Jesus really was about. And, uh, and so Unitarians broke away in the 1800s. Both the Unitarians and Universalists were very much still Christian-based, uh, biblically-based at that time, uh, just looking at it differently than the traditional Trinitarian churches would do. And... Um, and because of their readings because the universities say if all roads go to heaven then we're all equal that means everyone here is my kin so i need to like be an abolitionist i need to speak up for suffragette right and for the unitarians if it was all just focused on the work of jesus what jesus did was justice so they were abolitionists and you know suffragette and 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 to this day you know uh in in you know when when dr king called upon uh, churches to come to Selma to march, there were more Unitarian Universalist ministers than any other faith there. Um, and so and then in the in the very early 60s, 1961, the two faith traditions merged together. But probably around uh, um, the turn of last century, uh, sort of the beginning of the 1900s, humanism really began to take hold as, you know, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of thing and we don't need a God, um, we just need to, we humans have within ourselves the capacity to create a, a better, more just society. And so there began to kind of be this um, movement away from Christianity to uh, uh, more humanist points of view. And the first humanist manifesto, which was signed in 1933, had a majority of Unitarian ministers sign him. So in terms of zip to today, we uh we have um six uh sources of um of, of inspiration and the first one is the judeo-christian tradition uh which which is where our roots are and uh, and the teachings of jesus uh so yeah i do i do I have used um biblical stories for both the hebrew scriptures and the christian scriptures but i also use poetry by mary oliver or um uh, A quote from the book Little Bee has my sacred text, right? So my sacred text can come from anywhere, but certainly they can come from Christianity.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I love Mary Oliver. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) She's awesome. And so just sort of what motivates you personally to take a leadership role in, in your church and in your community as a reverend or as a minister, as you've been referring to yourself?
1: Um, you know, I, I really do believe, uh, that I I believe that we can create meaning and purpose in our life regardless of where we are. And I also believe that there are some things that call us to a higher place. And so, um, I wasn't raised in any faith tradition. I didn't become a Christian until I joined the Air Force when I was 18, after I'd gotten kicked out of my house. Um, and I became a minister not, not too long after that. And I just, I just felt like uh, this is where my gifts and skills are. And um, and again, from from the moment I came out, when I came out when I was sixteen years old, uh, I was awakened to um, the the level of injustice in the world. And you know, if in nineteen seventy eight, which is how when when I was sixteen, that's what year it was in Topeka, Kansas. You know the the, the, the myths and the misconceptions about queer folk were rampant, you know? And I thought, well, if they're wrong about me, I bet they're wrong about people of color and I bet they're wrong about, you know, clearly they're wrong about women. And and so um, I've been an activist in one form or another since I was 17. My first activist thing that I did when I was 17 was go to a Take Back the Night rally. And, um, and so I've been doing justice work since then. And I'm 58, so like for 41 years, I've been doing justice work. And I've been a minister for 31, so most of it is a minister. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I really like that piece about the myths and misconceptions and sort of like truth seems to really like anchor you to, to your work. Um, what other aspects of your religion, as it sort of goes along with your work in justice, like what, what aspects of your faith sort of come out in your personal life and in your personal values and not necessarily in your work? Um, other than just you know like truth and that sort of meaning.
1: Uh, well, you know the, our first principle, which is the my dog has a squeaky toy right here, so I apologize. <laughs> she likes to play when I'm on Zoom. Um, so our first principle is that you know belief in the inherent worth and dignity of every human. So that means uh, the checker at King Super, and he deserves to be treated with you know respect and dignity and the person experiencing homelessness deserves to be treated with inherent worth and dignity and uh you know how i how i how i how i live in my world regardless of whether i'm on the clock or not is is to value everyone that i meet and and finding uh, finding that good in them also uh you know just as i said our seventh principle is about protecting mother earth so trying to keep a low carbon footprint um is part of who I who I am daily, and uh, and and uh, trying to. You know, so, yeah, and you know, just in my relationships with friends, uh, you know, I just I, not that they would do it, but like we, I wouldn't tolerate a racist joke, right, or a sexist joke, or you know, a joke that demeans someone. I would just stop that. I would just say, I'm sorry. I don't I don't listen to those types of jokes. So those, I mean, just it kind of was like. It's like, you know, it is, it's been, it's been my, my, I've been a minister for 31 years and, um, uh, 12 of it is as a UU minister, uh, and really living these principles. It's just kind of a part of how I live my day. So,
0: yeah. And so you said that you started pursuing faith, like right around when you came out and when you were kicked out of your house, um, how, so as a child, what ideas of religion and faith were you raised with? You said you weren't raised to be religious. Um,
1: um, I mean, you know, I I know at least t- twice we must have gone to Easter because I have those pictures, right, of the little Easter bonnet and the <laughs> little dress my mom made. And I'm playing tough with my dog. <laughs> um, so, but we, you know, we just didn't really go. And I remember being like, in maybe fourth or fifth grade, and I went to a, a vacation Bible school that a friend of mine had invited me to. her dad was a minister. I really don 't recall much of that except for um, I got lost on the last day I was a little late, so I was free- stressing out, get, walking on this long r e wing of the church to find my classroom and um, and I just, you know, I got would get mortified by standing out. So I was mortified that I was late. That I was coming in late. It was last day. It was Friday, and then this harried woman, kind of like swings open the door and says, "Anybody want to get saved?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> so you know, that was that was my one invitation to join religion, and I missed it. So um, so I didn't really have much. I mean, I figured I knew that obviously. Uh, just from society that the Christian God didn't like queer people, right? I knew that, but it wasn't a part of my coming out story or, um, I mean, I I just kind of flew out of the closet when when I came out. I didn't have any, I was very claustrophobic, so I just couldn't stay in there, so um, that faith had no bearing on my coming out
0: um and were there any specific people that sort of were with you standing with you when you came out of the closet or any people that specifically like helped you to religion or any of that or were you pretty much you know alone as a young person well
1: i'm gonna have, i when i came out at 16 I, I obviously um you know i i found the queer community in topeka kansas and um, so I had, certainly had friends, but not at all about faith. It was just about, like, you know, I, I wore a tuxedo to my senior prom. I went with a gay boy who was a year younger than me, you know. So, I mean, I, I, I had, I had, a, I didn't have any fears or anxieties or concerns about being a lesbian. It wasn't like I questioned that or was it sick or was I wrong. I just felt like I had I just felt like the ugly duckling. I saw the swans flying overhead and I'm like, oh my God, that's where I belong. So um, the way I came to my faith was I joined the Air Force with one of my sisters, just as a way to get out of Topeka, Kansas, essentially. Mm -hmm. And um, this was in December of 1980. And at that time, the Gideon Society gave every inductee, a little green Gideon, Psalms, New, New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs. And, uh, so I just, and they take away all your personal books in basic training, right? You don't get anything personal. Um, so they took away my Stephen King novel, but I'm a reader. So I would just read this little Bible, right? Every night in the five minutes of free time. And, um, and I was, it was, as I said, it was just New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. So I was intrigued by this Jesus character who, um, just seemed so cool, right? And, uh, seemed to really you'd be on the side of justice and um, and I began to read that little Bible though like a Stephen King novel like I was afraid to turn the page because I was sure it would say except for Nori, God loves everyone but her, right? So I actually put the Bible away, I stopped reading it and then I didn't pick it up again until I got to my permanent duty station which was Castle Air Force Base in California and I'm unpacking in my dorm room and There's that little green Bible again, and I just began to read it all the time. I read it walking to work and on my lunch break and before bed. And every few verses, I'd look up and say, yeah, God, but what about? And it was never what about me. I was way beyond redemption. But what about Maggie and Liz, two couple a couple that had been together 30 years in Topeka? Um, They were going to hell because they had the same genitalia. I mean, I just couldn't get it, right? And I knew... I was falling in love with this Jesus, but I also knew I'm a lesbian and that I that wasn't gonna change. And, um, and it felt right. So if this Jesus couldn't love me as I was, then the deal was off. Mm. And then one night I had this dream. And in my dream I was sitting at the top of an embankment at a river, kind of hiding behind a, a, a bush and down at the river's edge was Jesus talking to a group of straight people And I just wanted so much to go and sit with them and listen to him. And I said to myself, you can't do that. You're a lesbian. And in my dream, Jesus looked right up at me through the bushes and said, it's okay, Nori. I made you that way. And I love you. So the next morning, I woke up feeling like I was on a first name basis with God. I prayed the little sinner's prayer in the back of the little green Gideon's New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. I signed and dated it. I still have it. And then like two days later, um, I locked myself out of my dorm room, and I knew that uh, we had a new dorm manager, but I hadn't met her yet. So I go down there to get the spare key, and clearly she's a lesbian and super so cute. <laughs> so like I go upstairs, and I am like am combing my hair, and then I bring <laughs> back her her spare key, and we're talking. This is a 1981, before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, um, and so you had to be kind of circumspect about the conversation. You might mention the based softball team or maybe a local bar that was you know gay or lesbian but she mentioned that she had just that last sunday gone to church that a church had just started that last sunday in a town near us Uh, and it was really great and i'm thinking to myself first of all oh great she's a christian never mind (laughs) because clearly she's not a lesbian but then she, I said, I said, well, what's the name of the church? And she said MCC, and I had heard of it. So I'm like, oh, I know that church. So from the minute that I became a Christian, I had a church home to be a part of, mm-hmm. and um, and so then that, then so I, that's how I, I, I just had this instant formed faith community waiting for me, which is not everybody's experience, but was mine. So, yeah, it
0: all does seem very sort of divine coincidence that it all came together so quickly and all at once
1: yeah, yeah. it was great
0: mm-hmm. um and so yeah you mentioned sort of like yeah t- mentioning softball or like the local like gay bars was it at that time like really not okay to be out in the air force
1: or the military? oh yeah i mean i had a friend who was lesbian and her sergeant was helping her move from the dorms to off base and um she realized she was missing a box and it was a box of love letters from her girlfriend and he had taken it and he had this is before email he was like he called her on the phone and said i have this box of letters you will go out with me on like he was blackmailing her and so she turned him in and she got uh she got expelled she got deemed out for being a lesbian he didn't have anything done to him and i had you know other friends who They were dating civilians and then they broke up and the civilian partner turned in letters and then the military person got kicked out. So yeah, it was um, like I said before, don't ask, don't tell even. So you had to be very closeted.
0: How did you find community with other lesbians as a very closeted lesbian in the Air Force?
1: Well, first of all, it was great to have church which had civilians and Jan, this floor manager, she was she was a lesbian, and and it is true. You just kind of have the gate on. You find people, and you know you do to, to go to this the base. A lot of them are on the base softball team. Not me because I've always been an NAL, a non-athletic lesbian. But many were, and uh, so you just kind of you just kind of with a you know like you know there is a knowing that happens, uh, and then you kind of band together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so like what did you expect initially from the Air Force and how was that different from what you encountered or you, did you pretty much know that it was going to be like that and it was just a feat of strength to go in there?
1: Yeah, um, I, when I, right when I, I we, uh, we enlisted the day after Labor Day in 1980 and we did delayed enlistment so that we could both go through basic training together, my sister and me. So we didn't go in until December of 1980, and Ronald Reagan had just become president, so I was at this, um, there was this local lesbian community in Topeka called the TLC, the Topeka Lesbian Community, and they had a guest speaker there who was a politician, and I mentioned I was going to the Air Force, and she said, oh, you know, be careful, and I'm like, yeah, I know, it's crazy, Uh, it was kind of a, you know, it really was just to get out of Topeka, Kansas, and get some stability in life. And uh, when I was in basic training, um, they we would have these inspections, and we had like our bed made right, and then our drawers. and We had a security drawer which had a lock on it, and it had any cash we had, and then our bill folds, and also like our soap and stuff like that. So we're having a security drawer inspection one time, and uh, the TI, the technical instructor, he kind of got a kick that Katie and I were there together, his sisters, but. He's like, okay, get you, you can either hold your whole little wallet in your hand or you just take out like your money and hold back. And I foolishly just did that. So he came upon my little tiny, like billfold that lesbian women, like would wear in your back pocket back in the day. Um, And he was going through everything. And I'm thinking, shit, I didn't think he was gonna do that. Cause in there was my membership card to the Lambda community, exclusively serving the Topeka gay community. It was a bar. And then there was my membership to the, at that time, NG, uh, NGTF, National Gay Task Force. So it wasn't even NGL yet. Mm-hmm. But, and he you know, comes across one, and he looks at me, and he comes to the Lambda card, which is pink, so I know what he's looking at, and he looks at me, and he found a couple of bank cards, which were, you know, you know like his said, membership cards. And he was trying to say he could get money for my account with that, but he said, how many unauthorized items did I find, Ross? And I said, two, sir. And he said, I want them gone tonight. So I knew that he knew, and he, he cut me a break. And that night, I tore up my little membership cards and flushed them down. The toilet was shaking hands, because uh, he could have uh, kicked me out right then, right? So and, that, and it, wasn't, it would not have been an honorable discharge. It would have been yeah. under other than honorable circumstances. So... But he didn't, so he had my back. I don't know why, you know. Did did he have a gay brother? Was he gay? You know, I don't know. Was it just that I was with my sister? But and then once you get to the actual job, it's just a job, right? It's, I mean, in the air, it's not like we were uh, in time of war. So I just had an office job that I went to every day, and um, and that was pretty much, you know, not that big of a deal. I, I never lied. Like, uh, you had annual evaluations, uh, airman performance reports, and you had to get a nine in all the categories. That's the highest you could get, and you really needed to get that, including in, like, community service. So I would mention, I was a deacon at Metropolitan Community Church. You know, I I never lied about that. I just never acknowledged it either. Mm -hmm. Like, I never made up a fake boyfriend, right? I didn't do any of that. Um, So...
0: Um, and what was your office job in the military? Was that religious at all or
1: No, I was just I was just a baby Christian at the time. Uh, it was inventory management, so um, I worked in base supply essentially.
0: Mm-hmm. And are you still close with your sister?
1: We were very close up until last November um, when I asked her if she could explain if she still supported Trump yeah. Mm. Then she just cut me off. So. But we haven 't spoken that sister and i haven 't spoken since November, but not about anything except for trump. This has this happened in many other families
0: mm-hmm. um, but she she was she aware that you were a lesbian when you oh, were yeah. young?
1: yeah, my whole family was
0: okay did she yeah. was she supportive? you guys went to the military together i
1: mean yeah, my family's been support i'm the youngest of five, so uh If you are familiar with birth order and large families, that really meant I was pretty insignificant to them, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't take me seriously. You know, I'm just the baby of the family. So, I mean, they've all been supportive. My siblings have all been supportive, and my mom has all been supportive after that initial bumpy start when I got kicked out. Um, But it's not been like, except for maybe my mom, it's not been like anybody would go to a Pride... Festival, you know, and supportive queer rights or anything. It's just uh, the basic family things you don't talk about but everybody knows so
0: um, Yeah, and so are the rest of your family Trump supporters also?
1: No, just her.
0: Just her okay. um, and how else has like Trump and that all that like figured into your work and also your, your personal life? Did, was there a shift? That November,
1: or actually, I wrote my sermon for the Sunday following the election. I wrote it the day before the election because I really didn't want the outcome to impact what I was saying. And yeah. I what I spoke about, and it's on our website, but what I spoke about was that this was such a vitriolic election season that we need to heal, we need to learn how to treat you know, one another with, with love and respect again. And actually, I didn't change anything. I preached it, I mean, it would have preached equally well if Hillary had had um, gotten the office she won, but it preached, you know, it was like a packed out, it was like standing room only in the church. We certainly got a Trump bump, as did many other progressive churches, where people are like, oh my God, I need to be with like-minded people and, you know, be in an atmosphere of support and action and hope. So I think for the first full year after the election, Every sermon included the, the phrase, now more than ever. <laughs> you know, we we became a sanctuary congregation in part because of the election. Something I'd always thought would be a good idea, but in, a, in the spring of 2017, seeing how already uh, Trump was, you know, warring against the immigrant community, we voted to become a host sanctuary congregation in May of, of 2017. Kind of indirectly. A response to his election. I mean, we should have done it anyways, and I'd been thinking about it, but it wasn't a priority. And then all of a sudden, it was a priority. Um, and we've certainly been, I myself as the minister and people in my congregation, very active in the Women's March. I was on the planning committee for that the first uh, two or three years. And um, uh, rallies t- uh, to support immigrants, refugees, women, Uh, reproduction rights Uh, so we've we've always been active and now we're really even more so
0: Mm -hmm. um yeah and so I guess what would you say are like your current priorities now like with the election coming up um, with the work that you're involved in and those like social movements and protests sort of
1: I say the biggest priority is getting out the vote making sure particularly young people vote immigrants vote uh, uh, people who are uh, maybe at risk of not getting their ballot, making sure that that people get their ballots. And then, like, we're going to organize it. All souls are going to organize people to pick up ballots to take to drop boxes so they're not mailed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, anybody can take up to 10 ballots to drop off at a drop box without having to fill out any paperwork. So... We're having people in our congregation who feel comfortable being out in the midst of this pandemic and driving and picking up ballots from other people's homes and taking them to the drop box, so that we don't have to worry about the mail either. We can just get them right right there. So that's a big thing right now. Um, Black Lives Matter and the the push to um, create a national oversight a team for police actions that lead to to the murder of black and brown bodies. That's a big push we're doing. I just created this project called the Paraclete Project, which is, and it's a two part, it's an educational project and then an action piece. And it's educating white folks to um, become more conscious of and aware of their own white privilege and uh, um, white supremacy and how that plays in their own life. So that they can shift from being a white ally to an accomplice to the BIPOC communities mm-hmm. uh, and really come alongside them in doing the work for social justice. And then the second part is we're going to do a virtual 5K fundraiser for Stephanie Spalding's Truth and Conciliation Project, which she wants to see a Truth and Conciliation Commission nationally that really um, acknowledges the deep vein of, of, a, of a racism, particularly in, in black uh, Americans from slavery on, how that's just been embedded in our. You when know, people say the system is is broken, that's not true. It's working exactly as it was designed to work. So to really kind of create this national commission where people can acknowledge that and then find ways to to work together to dismantle it. So those are my are my two biggest projects, and I'd say also two biggest projects: get out the boat, and then uh, coming alongside communities of color to to do the work of dismantling white supremacy.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and you also mentioned education of the white folks in your community. Uh, do you say you've learned anything in the past, like summer and, and with the movements that you're involved in?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, we just, did, we did, I pointed people to this free anti-racism training, which is online, put out by the El Paso County, Texas, um, El Paso, I mean, Texas, Center for Resiliency and Diversity, and it's a brilliant three-module anti-racist, self-paced course um, online. And I mean, I learned things there that I hadn't didn't know about. And I've been doing this work for thirty plus years, so um, I'm always learning more. Um, and uh, and then the other great, the other thing that we're encouraging people to see is the PBS two-part series on the Reconstruction, which really shows how um, white supremacy was built into the foundation foundation of our country, of our nation. I mean, and I already knew this, but like that the first police force was created to capture runaway slaves. So even the founding of the police in this country was based on white supremacy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and sort of um, with Black Lives Matter, um, is there anything Colorado Springs specific that you guys are doing with your work and in the movement that, um, like anything with this specific community that we should focus in on? Um, and the police and all
1: that. Members of our, of my congregation and myself have gone to many of the rallies and protests throughout this summer. Um, and, uh, Stephanie Spalding, who I mentioned is, is, uh, the founder of the Truth and Conciliation, truthandconciliation.org. Uh, she's also a UCCS professor in women and, uh. Uh, and race and uh, gender studies and she's uh, she is also a minister of her own congregation. So we're having her speak to our congregation on the 25th of October and we're reaching out to her congregation to see if we can't work, you know, be kind of be like study buddies, like we can work together uh, to to create this black and white um, force for nature, force of nature here in the Springs. Uh, We have many of our members are members of Surge showing up for racial justice. We've done, um, we have many of our members who are also members of the NAACP and go work with them and and their projects. So uh, we do a lot, we're doing a lot, but not officially, which is actually kind of great because it's like there's this whole new generation of of younger folk and, uh, and, and members of the BIPOC communities who are taking leadership. In these protests and these rallies, and um that's just great right so we again we the, the I, my project is called the paraclete project the word paraclete is used in christian scriptures has a name for the holy spirit but what it literally means is one who comes alongside so we want to come alongside the communities of color uh, and just go with them in this into this movement toward justice
0: mm-hmm. yeah and uh, I wasn't here this summer, but um, how has the Colorado Springs, like wider community, been reacting to your work and then also just the general work um, of Black Lives Matter protests and
1: movements? Um, well, I mean, <clears throat> there's certainly been a lot of um, uh, violence, like at, particularly for the protests that go on after dark, and people have been. You know, pepper sprayed or, or, or knocked down or uh, tasered by the cops. Um, there's, you know, been some arrests made. At the pro- daytime protests are more peaceful. I was a part of one that was all clergy, uh, you know, during a, a protest uh, seeking um, an oversight com- commission for police and, and, and justice in the deaths of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I actually went To Louisville, Kentucky, um, the end of July. I did a caravan there with some Stephanie Spaulding, some people from Aurora, Denver, Colorado, to go and be a part of the Breonna Taylor protests, which are also happening every day and every night since her murder. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, I I think the, uh, the response has been if. From progressive people, yay, good on you. And from conservative people, you know, you're a bunch of criminals and you, know, you should all be put in jail. So it just mm-hmm. kind of depends on, on who's responding. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it seems like um, you're part of a very strong progressive community here in the Springs. Um, and is there any like, have you, I know that things have probably changed in the past 20 years, but uh, like, is there, any sense of like fear or any of that with like living in this very conservative community or do you find it to be like large enough and diverse enough to have those safe spaces?
1: When I first came here in January of 1994 after Amendment 2 had been passed to 92 of course we were fighting that and it was wending its way to the Supreme Court but it hadn't gotten there yet and so there was a lot of of fear in the queer community uh, regarding teachers like uh, my first pride parade, a couple of teachers in the MCC congregation marched wearing bags over their head because they were afraid for their jobs, right, based on this amendment too, and just the really anti-queer um, sense that Colorado Springs was, and we were ground zero for hate state, and so, um, uh, and there were, you know, and I'm sure still are, but, you know, people would get bashed coming out of the one gay bar in and the hide-and-seek. Um, also at that time, of course, HIV AIDS was still very much part of the gay male community. Uh, it wasn't until 95, when the protease inhibitors were um, invented, that made it more of a, a long-term chronic illness rather than a death sentence. But at that time, it was a death sentence. So there was a lot of, it was the queer community was exhausted and felt um, like beleaguered on all sides that people were, you know, age is God's gift to the queer community, and you know, we got Amendment 2, and so there was a lot of fear at that time and tension, uh, but also that created, as uh, has opposition does in any community, it created this kind of this strong sense of, we're in this together, right? It was more grim. Now, 27 years later, uh, I think that the, the powers that be that created Amendment 2 uh, they've lost so much of their influence. Focus on the family is like, not even relevant anymore, right? Who cares? And um, uh, and and uh, and I think that a lot of local businesses and corporations who have uh, plants here or jobs here, they are very diverse, and they have they do have the sexual orientation and gender identity as part of their uh, anti discrimination clauses, and so that. I mean I know god help I don't understand how we continue to vote in Doug Lamborn because it feels to me like I mean that was just gerrymandering at its finest to get him to have this seat forever but but in, in spite of that and in spite of this kind of conservative voter streak that shows up on who gets to be mayor right it's just it's it's mind boggling to me because I feel like overall the community's not that conservative mm. but then it but what happens I think is that the more progressives don't vote right so then it shows up in our elections but i don't think it shows up so much in our community as a whole communities as a whole
0: and is that um something that you would say contributes to your large like priority on get out the vote is this idea that progressives here don't vote yeah mm-hmm. progressives
1: yeah. and independents yeah independents yeah. and Democrats have a lower typically a lower turn of vote out voter turnout than republicans mm-hmm. um And hopefully that will be true this year. And hopefully this whole new group of young people uh, will really empower and influence the vote.
0: And is that group of young people, Colorado Springs specific or just sort of nationwide? Or
1: nationwide.
0: Awesome. And um, yeah, just, I'm so intrigued by your experiences about 20 years ago, like how has the queer community, how just like some things that you would, you know, how is the solidarity like changing and and how is it growing or how has it, how have like locations changed, you know, going through the nineties and the AIDS epidemic. Um, And then like as focus on the family has faded, um, what are some things you've seen and like have really like um, struck you as important?
1: Well, back in when I got here in '94, um, I think the first Pride parade here might have been just a couple years earlier, right? Just early '90s. Uh, but it was still very much a march and not a parade, right? Uh, there, you know, uh, Southern Colorado AIDS Project always got a lot of cheers when you'd see these men and their moms like just marching pr- proudly, but with this disease that was a death sentence, right? Uh, and uh, knowing that many of them wouldn't be here at that time. I and mean, we would have World AIDS Day services every year on December 1st, where we would memorialize those who have died. And uh, uh, another, you know, so the P flag always was like, oh, great. They, they were, it was so, meant so much to our community to see parents marching with signs that say, I'm proud of my lesbian daughter. I love my gay son, you know, and. Those kind of things were such a focus uh, we didn't have marriage equality we I would do holy unions, but they weren 't legally bound right and um and so uh and and you could feel the difference between doing a holy union and doing a wedding like mm. this whole societal weight of approval on the wedding, and all the family was there, and maybe some maybe a mom or a cousin or somebody would show up to the queer holy union uh, one year. And anytime I was in the news, then I would instantly get like anonymous hate phone calls and hate email. As that became a thing, um, and hate letters. One uh, year there was this local conservative talk show uh, on AM, and it was right before Pride, and I like this, I can't remember this guy's name was Randall something, who was the DJ and there was a call-in show and like there was these people calling in saying because our our parade was coming up, our festival, we ought to just kill all those fucking queers, you know and on the radio saying this and he's kind of, Richard Randall, I think that's his name, so just kind of being encouraged right by the DJ and uh, other callers and I had a a woman who was a neighbor of mine who was a cop and she said I want you to wear this bulletproof vest in the parade Uh, so uh, so there was a lot of fear of, of, around safety, being an outspoken leader in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has just diminished. And oh, and we had a Pride Center that was on, uh, it moved around, but it was mainly on on Bijou Street. And, uh, and that was a place people could actually go. And there was like a little library you could check out queer books, you know, history, fiction, nonfiction, and they would have little dances or, they would have support groups a gay AA there, uh, other, other things. And, and, uh, they were the ones who were uh, producers of the parade, the pride festival and the, and the festival was, it was in Acacia park. So it was downtown. It was two days and the pr- parade started right by all souls and went down to to the park. And, uh, so it was great visibility. And then several years ago, the pride center kind of folded and, uh, uh, whoever produces the parade now, now it's in America's Beautiful Park, and the route is this tiny little route over the bridge, and it's it's really lost its allure. From and it's like a, it's not like a march. It's, it is a parade. It's a party. Look at all the pretty rainbow things you can buy, and um, and the parade is it's just like it was less money, and it was more convenient for the city for us to do this little tiny route which just starts at Tejon and um, and uh, Colorado, goes over the little bridge into America, the beautiful park, which isn't by anything, right? So it's like before it was downtown in your face. If you're shopping on Tejon or, you know, Kyla or Boulder, you, you were surrounded by queer people for two days. And now it's just like, and now, and it was free. And now you have to pay to even get in. And it's like, yeah. It, I haven't actually even gone the past couple of years. I mean, I've been in the parade and then I've left because it's like, it's, it just doesn't, it just feels like a big commercial enterprise rather than, you know, help, you know, sometimes white people will say, or straight people, well, we're going to have a straight parade. How about that? How can we don't get a parade? Well, it's not about flaunting who you are. It's about, I am surviving in a world that doesn't want me to survive. And that is why I'm marching. It's not, you know, straight people don't need a parade because the whole, they get a parade every day, right? They get, their whole community gets celebrated every day, so and it, it's just as lost for me, it's lost, and my first pride parade was in 1981 in San Francisco, so you can imagine how gritty that was, and and a couple of years while I was still stationed there, I would go, and it was such a march, such a protest march, right, and they would have this huge rainbow flag at the very beginning and people would throw money into it for AIDS research because the government wasn't doing anything. And so, so with that as my background, I feel kind of like one of those grumpy old people saying back in my day, it was only a march and not a parade. And I think it's great that people still go and I'm sure it's very affirming for young folk and, but for me, it's, it's kind of lost the meaning. Mm -hmm. So, and also in that time, as I said, the, the Pride Center folded, so the only, all of our queer bars have, have, have closed. So we don't actually have um, a space, which is good and bad, right? Because part of the reason why they, all, they folded is because uh, we can go to any downtown bar and dance with our girlfriend or boyfriend or... You know it's not like we have to be hidden away for fear of of being beaten up so much uh, we can go to we can go to restaurants and eat there are uh so in some some regards the stronger we the more rights we've achieved the more diffuse the community has gotten because you know the need to be um so out there so or so connected together isn't as strong because we're accepted more so um you know, we can make friends with our straight neighbors. You don't have to go to a, a lesbian-only party, right? Or there is still, I think there's a group called the Dinner of the Month Club, and pre-COVID, they would be just a bunch of lesbians, and they'd, they'd say, okay, we're gonna meet at this restaurant and have dinner the third Saturday of the month. So that's an informal thing that still goes on. There's a, a wine tasting that's queer, that I think still goes on. It did pre-COVID, not now, I'm sure. Um, there's a first Friday in Denver lesbian dance club that a lot of lesbians will go to dance there. But overall, the community has become much more diffuse, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, drawing on your experiences, sort of in the like radical San Francisco um, Pride marches, um, what do you what do you think the current sort of like liberal pride parades, what do you think they should be focusing on? Um, And what do you think those groups should change? Um, And yeah, and like what should be important to the the queer communities of today?
1: Um, So I did, (coughs) just allergies, not contagious. So I did go to the, uh, we did have a kind of an, obviously our pride was canceled at Storm in July, but uh, the week before Stonewall, Um, We had in the springs a queer parade in support of Black Lives Matter. So some speakers at Acacia Park. And then we marched just very ragtag informally. But has a queer community in support of Black Lives Matter, right? So that, I think what we need to be looking at is the intersectionality, right? It shouldn't be, I mean, I would rather it be less about at all the rainbow things that we can buy and more about how do we how do we march with great purpose regarding the intersectionality with black lives matter with the immigrants with with uh, refugees with women right with the government trying to um, to control reproductive uh, freedom right that we need to we need to be accomplices to, to those movements we need to come alongside them because the only any, any movement, any social change has only been made possible by allies from the dominant group, right? Slavery would not have been abolished without white abolitionists. The suffragette movement would not have happened without white male support. Um, the civil rights movement wouldn't have happened without white liberal support. The feminist movement wouldn't have happened in the 70s and 80s without male support. And the queer movement wouldn't have happened without straight support, right? So so we need, we need to recognize that we have a powerful voice, has, has an aggregate community of, of many queer communities to, to come alongside the Black Lives Matter, to come alongside, you know, to, to, to really, um, uh, join in, uh, or, you know, a corner side honk, you know, hawk honk, honk as you go by. Uh, demonstrations for Planned Parenthood. It doesn't matter that it has a lesbian. I would, you know, the chances are extremely low that I would ever need to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. I had, I it was, but it did matter that I, I've always been an ally for Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. So we need to use our queer voices to amplify the voice of the marginalized groups that may, or, because in every one of those groups, Black Lives Matters, refugees, immigrants, uh, reproductive choice are our people, right? Queer people are black. Queer people are refugees, are immigrants. Queer people actually can get pregnant and need to have an abortion or just have access to affordable health care, right? So we have got to stop taking ourselves out like we're over here and everybody else is over there. We're actually all one great community.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you tell me some of some memories, some recollections you have from the beginnings of Um, the marches that you attended, like San Francisco, and then like in the different areas you've been in, like Long Beach, um, and how those have all been different or similar, or just things that stood out to you?
1: Well, as I said, the San Francisco ones were early, early, actually early in the AIDS movement. Um, And so that was a big focus, AIDS. And then always, of course, at Dykes on Bikes, right? All these lesbians on their motorcycles with you know their bitch behind them or whatever half of them topless you know they'd always be like the first part of the parade um and then i mean it was like a half a million people right in san francisco so if you wanted a t-shirt you had to get it before the march because they would be sold out <laughs> so um and it was just cramped it was there was the the, the march and then the big festival was just like uh you could barely move. There were so many people there and uh, that was very liberating. I was in the Air Force at the time so I could have risked being spotted by the wrong person, but I didn't care. I went and Just uh, and to, to feel that level of community at that time when I was in the military where I could get kicked out for, for being lesbian um, Where AIDS was decimating the gay male community where we were being completely ignored by the government to feel that level of solidarity was amazing, and the same in Long Beach. In Long Beach, I, I, um, I, be, I, became a minister in 1989 and was on staff at MCC Long Beach. Again, a big queer community. We had our own you know, queer ghetto. The Broadway corridor was, you know, kind of Queerville, and lots of gay people lived there and lesbians, and the bars were there, and um, many, many uh, local bars, and uh, and again. Just that sense of you know that feeling of solidarity in the parades be- because of AIDS in particular because of prop sixteen what was it prop sixty nine where this Lyndon LaRouche guy was wanting to quarantine uh all gay men you know with AIDS and just all this uh, political bullshit going on and um Uh, And then here, again, there were so much smaller, right, Colorado Springs, in those early years in particular, it'd be like, we'd started where All Souls is, at Dale and Tejon, and Go of Tejon, and sometimes, and this whole parade, right, sometimes for the first several blocks, you'd just be people walking their dogs, you'd be like, hey, how are you, Good, good to see you, you know, and then maybe a block, a half a block before the actual festival, that's where everybody would be, so they didn't have to walk, and it got so that there were more people lining the streets, ultimately, so it felt like we were actually having a, a real march or parade with onlookers, you know, instead of just everybody crushed up at the end, and, uh, and, and then again, and while it was at Acacia Park, it still felt like this sense of solidarity and, um, and community, and when I was with uh, Pikes Peak MCC, I would do the Sunday morning worship there in the park, at Acacia Park, before the parade, and uh, and as I said, now it just feels more commercialized and, uh, and I, I, I just hope that we can, because clearly our rights are in, are in jeopardy just as much as anybody else's during this regime, right? We've seen our own rights get rolled back, trans rights in particular. So we need to, um, we need to remember, as has the, the meme says, Stonewall was a riot. Not, uh, not afraid, right? And, and that's true. And, and uh, that's, that's an important thing to remember, I think.
0: Um, and you mentioned uh, sort of this fear of being found out when you did go to the marches in San Francisco. Um, and so like what risks did you feel you could sort of get away with in the Air Force? And then what things did you really watch? Like with the, the pamphlets that you had that you had to rip up um, what were things that you were able to do and what things did you really avoid um, showing or doing?
1: Once I was stationed, you know, at Castle Air Force Base, you know, I was living in the dorms. Jan, the dorm manager, and I did get together and I moved in with her. She had two boys that were like seven and nine when we got together. And I remember one time uh, I was just you know enlisted and the officer in charge of my where I worked was coming to the house to look at a desk that Jan was selling and um, the, the the youngest son Shannon opened the door, and, and this officer said, "Is your mommy home?" And he says, "Well, which one? I have too? And I came around the corner just then, and he she said he was fibbing to me. He said he has two mommies, and I said, "Well, you kind of do, don't you, Shannon?" I mean, I, I wasn't going to lie about that, or or dismiss what he had just said. I I never pretended to have a boyfriend. I actually kind of live by this motto. Act like you have nothing to apologize for, and no one will expect you to apologize. So um, I talked about you know, living with Jan, and I, I never said to my roommate, I just would say Jan, right? And so did, I just had, I, and I couldn't change pronouns. So I actually felt, I don't know if I'd say safe, but I felt like I'm living a life of integrity, and I'm not gonna lie. Like I wasn't afraid that they might find me out. It was just a knowing that they could find me out. You know, and, and I, I marched anyways. Uh, so, um, but as I said, I other friends. Uh, it really became an issue when somebody brought it up, right? Whether you're try- like my friend who was trying to say I'm being blackmailed. The issue wasn't that she was being blackmailed; it was that she was a lesbian, so she got kicked out. Um, and my friends who who civilians. There was there's off in the, in the military. There's this OSI, which Office of Special Investigations, and they kind of do covert. Um, you know, looking into things, and uh, they might, like, the movie Personal Best came out, super first lesbian show ever, and it was showing at the local little theater, and a whole bunch of us from the base were there, and again, it was just knowing that there might very well be OSI agents in the theater to see which military people were there watching this lesbian show, but we did it anyway, so. But I got out. I really actually enjoyed the Air Force, but I did get out because um, after my first four years, because I knew that I wanted to go into the ministry and and I, and I needed to be a civilian for that.
0: So, um, yeah, like I guess with the tra- transition sort of out of the Air Force, um, would you say it was more a, a draw to pursuing theology and faith and less of the like fear of being found out or, or both or...
1: No, I'd say more that because I, I, I think, again, that and I suppose it would just be different if I had a different boss. I don't, I don't think that it was so funny. One time I was working uh, the swing shift, which is like 4 to 11, with this guy, Sergeant Languica, And um, I guess I just looked innocent, but he, uh, he said, you know, I just get this feeling about you. I'm not going to say it. And I'm like, please don't say it. Please don't say it. Because I could kind of figure out what he was going to say. And then he's like, I'm going to say it anyways. I just get this feeling like you're pure, you know, innocent, like a virgin, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's right, Sergeant Langrica. I've been untouched by man. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which is true. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really, I, but I, I think I could have had my path gone differently. I could have stayed in. I know a lot of uh, my Jan, the woman that I was with, she she stayed in and retired. She did have pulled twenty plus years in in the Air Force, and I think I could have too. I mean, uh, but I, I mean, at that time, I think I could have. But you know, as I got more and more involved in social justice, maybe that would have been a bigger issue. Because mm-hmm. I, whether or not I'm a minister, I would have gotten more and more involved in social justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you got a, you have a PhD in theology, right?
1: Doctorate of ministry is called. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Doctorate of ministry.
0: Okay. And so I guess tell me more about the process pursuing your faith, but, and also your education, um, in, in religion and sort of, uh, your beginnings as someone who just was drawn to, or had this dream about Jesus and then how your journey toward like through your education and what, Things about religion stood out to you and which things you knew you wanted to avoid, I guess.
1: Um. Well, so, like I said, I had a church from the minute I became a Christian and I began to go to that MCC every Sunday. It was in Modesto, California, met in a community center in the evening, and our minister would say, Let's put up chairs for Jesus. You know, and it was like an altar in a box we would bring in and set up the altar and the little hymnals that we had and then at the end of the service we'd have to fold up all the chairs and put them away and break everything down take it out and uh i left church just excited to go back the next week i just loved it so much and um this was in the summer of 81 and then i began to think what what, what am i what if maybe i should be a minister i don't know should i be a minister And we had just learned, and it was a very conservative MCC. I mean, it was queer, but conservative, right? Pretty literal belief around Jesus. And uh, our minister had just told us a couple weeks ago the biblical story about uh, putting out a fleece. Um, And now I'm going to forget the guy who did it. There was this uh, big warrior for God, and God said, I want you to go and fight the Amalekites, and you'll be successful. And uh, he said, well, just... just, uh, just to make sure I'm hearing this right, I'm gonna set out this sheep fleece, this sheepskin, and if you're telling me to go to war with the Amalekites, then in the morning, the sheep fleece will be completely dry, but the ground underneath and all around it wet with dew. So that's what happened. This being a guy, Ewan said, just one more try, just to make sure I'm getting this god. I'm gonna do the same thing tonight, but this time, the sheep fleece is gonna be soaked with dew, but the ground underneath and all around it dry, and it was so, and so, uh, based on that, um, you know, he went to to, went to war with the Amalekites and actually took like less and less men so it could be God that showed that it was God's will, right? And so uh, there's this whole thing in evangelical Christianity about putting out a fleece, which is kind of like a spiritual flipping of the coin, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd be going to church a few months. This had happened. And I said, okay, I left church one Sunday and thought, okay, God, if you, if it's your will that I become a minister, then two things are gonna happen next Sunday at church. And one of them is that the minister, Patricia, is going to give me this necklace that she had been promising to give me. It's, it was a little Cairo cross, which was the, the, the symbol of MCC, it's a, an ancient cross. And it was just this cheap little pewter necklace on like a you know chain. And I thought, but she's been promising to give me that for weeks and just keeps forgetting. So that's kind of easy. So I'll add something else. So she'll give me my Kylo cross necklace, and she'll say something to me about getting my racing stripes. And racing stripes were, if you were a student minister, you wore a clergy collar, but there was a little black stripe down the middle to to show that you're a student, right? So I go to pray this all week long, and I go to church. I'm just like, my entire future lies in the balance, and I'm 19 years old, and I've been a Christian for like four months, and so... um, I get there to the community center and the minister comes rushing up to me and she says, I have something for you. And my heart's going, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God. And she has me this really pretty, uh, 14 karat gold Cairo, uh, cross necklace, which is hers. And she said, I'm going to lend you mine. They're out of stock. I'm going to lend you mine until yours comes in. I'm like, well, that could go either way. Good thing I have a second one. So I'm, putting up chairs for Jesus at the end of the ceremony wow. service. And um, I'm walking by while she's talking to somebody else. And right when I'm walking by, she's saying to this other person, we have to see about getting you your racing stripes. So wow. I went home and I thought, what does this mean? And I thought, God is saying, wait, you're, you're just a young Christian, you're young in your faith, wait. And so I didn't say a word about that to anybody. And That was in 1981. I left the Air Force, moved back to Topeka, was a deacon in the MCC there, but didn't tell this to anybody, came back to Modesto, moved there uh, several years later. It was like 1986, maybe 87, same ministers at the church, and I'm a deacon there helping out, you know, serving communion and, you know, whatever, and we're having this conversation one day, and she said, have you ever thought about being a minister and I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. And so that's when I really began my journey. And at MCC at that time, it was like the Wild West. It was, you could just say, I feel a calling to preach. And they'd say, here's your caller, go forth and spread the good news. So I did some like basic flannel gram theology, really. It was like these correspondence courses on the history of MCC and the governance of MCC and uh, Christian history. It's just like these little correspondence courses that they had back in the day. And um, uh, and then in 1989, I became a minister, July 1989. I didn't even start my bachelor's program until September of 89. So I didn't, didn't even have any theological education really, right? Um, so as I said, uh, the MCC in Modesto was fairly conservative. The MCC in Long Beach was charismatic. Uh, Progressive, you know, believe in a woman's right to choose, queers are fabulous, and speak in tongues, right? So it was like this crazy thing. And then, so I came here to to, uh, Pikes Peak MCC in 94, and kind of was still in that same vein. Uh, And then I started my Master's of Divinity, which is the professional minister's degree most denominations require. Uh, and, And MCC does now, too. Um, but I didn't be, even begin that till January of 99, and I, and I got that at I Live School of Theology in Denver. So um, so once I began to get a real theological education, it completely changed my view of my faith, right? And I stopped preaching what Jesus is saying in Luke 5, what Jesus meant when he said this in Luke 5 is, and I started saying what the writers of Luke meant when they wrote this in Luke 5, you know, it's changed to change everything. And then there came that day when I realized I didn't believe in hell anymore. So if I, and I really fervently thought I was saving queer folk who had walked away from God, from hell, right? I was letting them know Jesus loved them and that there was a place for them. Um, so once I realized I didn't believe in hell, then I'm like, well, why am I a Christian minister? And I pondered that and thought, well, to do the works of Jesus, right? Uh, to do social justice and to speak up for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. And uh, to seek a just society. And then again, as I said earlier, so I graduated with my um, MDiv in uh, 2005, May of 2005. And I started my doctorate of ministry in September of 2005. Um, And I graduated with that in 2007. And as I said, I just, uh, um, I saw that MCC was really, Christian at its core, and really conservative Christian at its core, and that they couldn't change that. But that, all, you know, Unitarian Universalism was there, and so again, I made that UU turn. And and uh, and you know, what I love about being a UU a Unitarian Universalist is that we do have six sources of inspiration: um, Judeo-Christian, science, uh, prophetic deeds, uh, deeds and actions of deeds and words of prophetic men and women like. Uh, Dr. King or or Gandhi, right? World religions, uh, earth-centered religions. There's this vast diversity of truth from which I can draw inspiration and use to hopefully inspire uh, the congregation on Sunday morning, but also as we live out our lives.
0: Mm. Uh, I do have a lot more questions. We've got about 40 minutes. Do you want to take like a five-minute break?
1: Um, I thought this was 1.30 to 2, and I do have... Uh, a three. I mean, one thirty to 3, and I do have a 3 o'clock appointment. Okay, so
0: yeah.
1: Like 10 do you mind we
0: just push through
1: to 3? To 3, sure. It's only 10 minutes, and then if you want to do a follow-up conversation, we can. I just made all a 3 right. o'clock appointment because I thought it was one thirty to 3.
0: Yeah, I'm so sorry about that mix-up. Yeah, I wonder where that – probably on our end. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, so right. it was.
1: Yeah. But the email the, said. I was just looking back through the email. I said one thirty, but – It's okay. We got ten minutes. Okay. I also saw we can we can we you can call me back. I mean we can do this we can reschedule another meeting if you want.
0: Okay. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for that flexibility. That yeah. Um I've been having a really awesome time with this conversation. Uh I'm just so intrigued with yeah, with your history in the ministry. Um and I feel like throughout your history um, with faith, you've had very strong convictions, either one way or the other, like what you think is right and um, what you feel is not right. Um, Are there any other moments of doubt that you've backtracked on and and, um, just like, have you doubted the Unitarian Universalist faith or um, faith in general? Have you ever felt like abandoned by God or or anything like that? Or have you always really had a a feeling of rightness with this faith?
1: Well, like I said, you know, I uh, I wasn't raised with a faith, so I didn't have to wrestle, as a lot of queer folk do, with does God love me, or am I sick, or do I need to pray this away? Which still happens tragically. Um, and when I became a Christian, there was a church waiting right there for me. Um, I would say that, So I, so I'd say that I've had this ever-expanding faith that at first it was really focused on Jesus and salvation. You know, like praying the sinner's prayer and that's how you get to heaven, and, you know, um, so so that was its beginning, and then it's expanded to this progressive Christian uh, viewpoint of, you know, all dogs go to heaven, and, um, you know, we it's more about doing the work of Jesus, and it is about the blood of Jesus, and then you know, to then to this kind of more progressive Christianity, where, you know, I really, I would do I, I would do communion and invite anybody right. Uh, not you don't have to be a Christian you know if you just are seeking truth in your life you're welcome to this table right. Um, and just and then to this post Christian, where Jesus is no longer the plumb line right. What what is the plumb line is justice. Um, that's the plumb line of my faith, uh, and and justice can be found in in many more faith traditions than just Christianity or just in the life of Jesus, right? So um, so now I, I don't really actually believe in a God. Um, I believe um, that there's something, something more that calls us to our highest self. And maybe that's just the evolutionary impulse that caused us to go to land, right? And then caused us to walk upright and then caused us to, to recognize how fire can be built and then caused us to create GPS Right, and that the, we, we have within us, and we're here because we have within us this evolutionary spark that always calls us to something more. So I feel like there's this something more and it may be just that evolutionary spark that calls us to our highest self, but that we share in common. Um, and, uh, I, and I believe that all religion is metaphor, that in every age people have asked themselves the big questions. Where do we come from? What happens when we die? What happens to bad people? Um, And in every age, we've answered them differently, which is why we have so many religions. And even within Christianity, we have so many forms of Christianity, just even on the topic of baptism alone, right? Lutherans and Catholics, you have to get baptized early as an infant, or you won't go to heaven when you die. You'll just be in some like limbo, purgatory kind of thing. Baptists say you don't get baptized till you're 13 and you reach the age of reason. You're protected until then because you don't know any better. Um, German Baptists say you get baptized being dunked three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost on the third time it takes. Pentecostals believe you can only get baptized in the name of Jesus, and if you get baptized any other way, you're going to hell. So even on the topic of a very common Christian belief of baptism, there's so many different stories about it because people find meaning in different ways. And we, even today, religions are still being created or adapted or tweaked because it, those answers aren't the same. They don't work the same. So every religion is a, is a metaphor, for people's response to those big questions. Something nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just that, um, what I, so what I've come to realize is that my faith is, uh, is rooted in, in my, my questions are rooted in justice. So it's not where do we come from or what happens when we die, but who is missing at the table and how can I get them here? Mm-hmm. And how am I living in privilege that, in some way, supplants somebody else's rights to a just life? So I have different questions now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I, like I said, I have a lot more questions, but I think I should probably give you a break before your next um appointment. Um, mm-hmm. so oh, thank self- you know. so much for arranging to meet with us a second time. Um, yeah, I'm so sorry about that mix up with the email beforehand. Um. But yeah, um, really good that we can finish this off because I definitely have a couple more questions that kind of just like popped up throughout the interview. Um, but only like a couple more, like two or three, and then yeah, we can talk about anything else um, if you need. Um, let's see, so the first one that I wanted to start off with, sorry about that, um, was uh, you said that the queer communities that you were a part of when you were younger were formed more out of like necessity or even survival. Um, but now LGBTQ people in general are more accepted. Um, So I guess I was just wondering, is there still a cohesive queer specific community that you identify with in the Springs? Or is your community more of just generally progressive people um, or people in your church?
1: Right, so I will say that there is a generally cohesive queer space still for young people coming out. And that's at the Inside Out Youth Services Center. Uh, where I think they um, have clients from uh, 13 to 22, so that's still a really great cohesive space for young people coming out, because tragically it's still an issue for some families, right? But for um, for uh, other just regular adults, I would say um, that you know we have our own just our own friendship circles. I've been here 27 years, so I have a friendship circle of queer folk that I hang out with, right? And a lot of um, queer folk are involved in um, the Democratic Party. So the El Paso County Dems, El Paso County Lady Dems, you know, that there's, there, they, uh, the Sierra Club, the, the Sierra Club has a gay and lesbian kind of subchapter. So I think a lot of queer folk now kind of tend to affiliate more broadly with people who share their common Goals and values rather than sexual identity. Mm. Okay,
0: yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and then um, have you ever faced prejudice specifically as a lesbian reverend, either in the school of ministry or throughout your career? And I know you like your other churches and things like that.
1: Obviously, my my churches are fine. Uh, MCC was a queer Christian church, and Unitarian Universalism is. Um, Is very open and diverse, has a lot of queer ministers, uh, trans ministers. Um, It just is very open. There was one time, however, uh, when I was still with MCC and I got this little postcard in the mail that said, You know, October is Pastor Appreciation Month. And so during Pastor Appreciation Month, the Navigators at Glen Erie has a special appreciation to pastors. We're having a I think it was like maybe three-night retreat there at the Navigators. Beautiful, beautiful place. And, um, uh, and also they would have a preaching professor come in from this uh, seminary in, in Dallas, Texas to do a little workshops, but it would be like you know, prayer time and fellowship time. So I signed up. I'm like, that sounds cool. And I, I put that I was a woman to make sure that I would be with a woman minister. I got there. It was 35 white men, one black man, and me. And wow. these, I'm driving into this, the, the navigators, it's, it's, it's kind of close to a garden of the gods. It's just a beautiful, lovely space. Um, I thought to myself, do I need to tell them I'm a lesbian? Cause really I want this to be a retreat. And it, was, it didn't matter. It was just the fact that I was a woman and these men were so angry were so angry that i was there and we had this opening prayer circle we're all like holding hands and these men are saying things like thank you father god for these godly men that you've called to preach your word father god it was horrifying nobody would sit with me at meals even i literally sat by myself at meals um after that first little prayer time i just used the prayer time i just went hiking uh, and let them have their own little man space. I figured they needed to confess pornography or something, you know, but um, I did go to the preaching classes, but it was, I was shocked. Um, I mean, The Navigators is a conservative Christian organization, but evidently they didn't check the gender of the people they were mailing these postcards out to. (laughs) So in my ministry, that's really the only time that I've I've experienced uh, discrimination. Um, And that was Mainly more for being a woman, let alone a lesbian.
0: Do you consciously avoid those spaces, or you just find yourself in your specific faith, like not really in those spaces? Um, I'm not
1: in those spaces, particularly as a Unitarian Universalist. However, when I was with MCC, focus on the family I always had a pastors' appreciation luncheon, and I always went to that. And we sat at these big eight-top tables, and you know you had to introduce yourself, and how do I say, I'm Nori Ross, you minister. at uh, Pikes Peak Metropolitan Community Church, that's a queer Christian church, and then there would just be this silence, but I would kind of push my way into those spaces as having a valid right to be there. So, uh, but now as a Unitarian Universalist, um, not so, uh, it's not Christian, so I don't find myself uh, needing or wanting to access those spaces.
0: Um, and then in terms, I guess this is a connected question, but um, not necessarily with being a leader in your church, but just uh, in your day-to-day interactions around Colorado Springs, are there any misconceptions, or with your family too, are there any misconceptions with being both religious and also a member of the LGBTQ community? Is that ever something you find yourself explaining to anyone?
1: Um, It happened more often when I was uh, with MCC as a Christian, Uh, and, and I would also do like a lot of panels. I'd go to UCCS, and I think maybe Colorado College back in the day and do a panel on uh, Christianity and homosexuality, you know, and explaining how the two could go hand in hand. My family, as I said, wasn't, we weren't raised religious. I have one sister who's very religious now, Missouri Synod Lutheran. Um, But in the early days, when I'd come home for a visit, They were all afraid I was going to say the G word, and it wasn't gay, it was God. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so they, you know, they don't, they, they. I don't think really have any concept of who I am and, you know, what I do. They know I'm a minister, um, they know I'm an activist, but, you know, I'm the baby of the family, so I don't really get a lot of um, attention from my family. They, you know, you your family listens to you as they see you. So my family listens to me as the baby of the family, right? So. Uh,
0: w- would you say they're more just non-religious or, or is it like an anti-religion? Non-religious. Religion?
1: You know, I mean, if pressed, you know, my mom would probably say she thinks there's a God, mm-hmm. um, but it's just never been a focal point for my family. Except for this one, my older sister now who's very conservative. The more money she's made, the more conservative she's gotten politically and religiously. Mm-hmm. So
0: Yeah. I, I find that to be a common thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: Don't that I, happen to you. Make lots of money, but don't get conservative.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh it's hard to avoid one <laughs> of those those two. Um but uh yeah, I guess also uh in connection with your family, uh, I remember you said something earlier about how when you came out as a young person, you came out very abruptly and, and suddenly and, and sort of all at once. Was that intentional or were you more like outed by someone or was it with a relationship that you had at this time? Or that I was out as
1: a lesbian for almost a year before I even had a girlfriend. Um, and what and That's unusual because most people find out because they're attracted to somebody, then something happens, and oh my god. But for me, um, I just um, had not a lot of success with boyfriends. I'd get kind of like, you know, bored with them and break up, and just thought I hadn't found the right one. And I was 16. I was working in a Bonanza steakhouse, and the owner said that her daughter and roommate were coming from Chicago to manage the restaurant. So I didn't think anything of it, but I'm in the back room bussing tables one day, and and in walked these two young women who I can only describe as 1978 lesbian chic. They had short feathered hair, they had on chinos, they had on a button up Oxford shirt. And I looked at them and in my mind, I said two things. I said, that's it, they're lesbian and so am I. Mm-hmm. And it really was like the ugly duckling seeing the swans flying o- overhead. And I was so happy that I would found my tribe that I just kind of flew out of the closet I wore a T-shirt to my high school that said, "How dare you presume I'm heterosexual?" I wrote all of my papers on you know homosexuality, whether it was you know uh, my psychology class or history class or creative writing class. It was all about you know gay gay people. Um, I would I would this friend of mine who who was straight. We would take these little three by five note cards and we would tent them. And on the outside, we would write, read me. And on the inside, we would write, gay is good. We are everywhere. We do the lambda sign. And then we take them to the Ramada Inns and drop them in the hallway. <laughs> so I just kind of became really weirdly radical. But it was because I had felt so on the outside my whole life. And it was as if suddenly the kaleidoscope shifted and I could see clearly where I belonged. And so I was super excited about it. And I didn't have any religious you know, baggage to deal with. But like I said, I... I was out almost a year before I even had a girlfriend, so I just knew it, though.
0: Yeah, that, yeah, I love it. So that, too, it's just, like, so much pride, I feel like. I feel like pride, gay pride is, like, the perfect phrase to describe that. And would you say it was, like, a, a feeling of, like, rightness within, like, personal identity or, like, community or, like, sexual orientation specifically or just, like, all three? Like
1: All of that, all of the above. It was, like... you know, suddenly realizing I'd been wearing the wrong wrong size shoes and I put on the right size and it just felt so much better, right? Um,
0: And does that experience like with growing up in your Kansas community, how does that inform your work in your church and as like a member of like a faithful community? Um, do, Do you find yourself going back to any of those moments in high school or is it something that you feel like you've more grown from and you connect more to the social justice aspect?
1: I definitely connect more to the social justice aspect. And what probably, uh, what I probably, uh, what the the influence from my childhood that probably influences me the most is our socioeconomic situation because we were very poor. We were working poor. My mom was on welfare for a period of time, you know, so... um, so I never forget my common roots, my working class roots, my working poor roots. And uh, Unitarian Universalism can be um, a faith that has a lot of white collar people in it, right? Doctors and uh, physicians and psychologists and professors. We have a CC professor that comes to our congregation. And, and so uh, it's really been useful for me to remain grounded, though, in... The, the common people. And that also uh, impacts my social justice work too, you know. So more than my sexual, more than my coming out story, my, my working poor roots keep me grounded to my social justice activism.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, thank you. As some other things I've been wondering, just uh, kind of closing up questions. Uh, could you speak of some of the best moments in your Reverend career? when you've you know, felt like a profound sense of rightness in what you're doing, um, just some specific moments that have make, made you feel like that?
1: I have a lot of moments like that. Um, but, uh, back in the, I became a minister in 1989 when AIDS was kind of at its height in the queer gay male community. Mm-hmm. And doing work, being you know, with so many um, young men who were dying, and being with them at their bedside and um, letting them know God loved them and you know they weren't forsaken, that was always profound. Um, this is kind of a funny story, but it speaks to your question, I think. In um, the early 90s, we were in the first Gulf War, right, with Iraq. And um, so, of course, I was anti-war and I was a queer minister and I was – like I'd gone to this anti-war rally with some friends and um, we went we went to the wrong one. It was Spanish speaking only and there was like maybe 20 people. And I just felt like I was always in the minority, right? I was so tired of being in the minority. And just once, just once in my life, I wanted to be in the majority and be a part of the dominant you know, people. And I was going to see a new hairstylist that morning. And I said to myself, I'm not going to tell her what I do because I'm so sick. I just wanted to think I'm a normal white woman. I'm not nothing special. I'm just so sick of having to be in the minority. But of course, she asked and I told her I was a queer minister and oh, blah, 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 blah. So I'm driving back to church, really deflated and thinking, God, this is so exhausting. This work is so exhausting. And I I get into my office and um, there is a note on my desk to call um, Robin Tyler uh well, she she kind of did this i don't know if you're familiar with olivia travel but they do all lesbian cruises there used to be a record label olivia music and they did all women lesbian uh, woman identified music and then has as Melissa came out, and the Indigo Girls came out, and Katie Lane came out, they realized they needed to change, so they created this travel company. Well, Robin Tyler is a lesbian comedian, and she was doing the same thing at that time, so I had this message on my desk to call the Robin Tyler organization, and I did, and they said, we're doing an all-lesbian cruise to the Mexican Riviera uh, for Thanksgiving week, and we want a lesbian minister to do, like, a couple of Non-denominational worship services and the big mass wedding, maybe some private weddings, and of course it's free for you and your partner. Would you like to go? And I'm like, sure. So it was like, you know, God or the universe was saying, "See, you can only do this because you're a lesbian minister. <laughs> so you're in the majority here. So that was super fun. And anytime, like I do, uh, um, like speaking at the women's rally, women's march, or speaking at this uh, kind of vigil we had after the 2016 election just for, we were all so shattered. All those, all of those circumstances, but and also um, like I had a congregant who had gone to check in on her adult daughter, who was 52, she hadn't been answering her phone and she found her dead. And it was a Friday night and she called me and I went over to her daughter's apartment and we had to wait for the funeral home to come pick her up. It was like four hours. And I sat there with this uh, congregant who was like in her late 70s at the time with her the body of her daughter. And we, we laughed, we cried. And in moments like that, I feel so right, so profoundly right in what I'm doing. So it's not just social justice activism, but how I connect with people on an individual basis as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. And this might sound like a bit of a cliche question, but if you could go and tell your, like maybe yourself, but any like young lesbian woman in in a working class family um, in high school, is there anything that you would tell that that person or like a piece of advice or anything like that?
1: I would just, I would probably just say, don't ever doubt your authentic self. You know, don't ever try to be somebody you're not. And you know, go boldly. You know, as who you are, be loud and proud. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then throughout your your whole journey, your career, and your life, is there anyone that you, like you've really tried to emulate in terms of your work, or really looked up to on a spiritual, but also like a personal level?
1: Um, I would say that uh, it's not anyone that you would know, but there is this minister, uh, Jim Matulski. He was a minister of MCC San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, from hmm, maybe 1985 to 1995. Mm-hmm. So he was a minister of a queer church in San Francisco during the height of the U.S. AIDS years. And they lost over 500 members in that time to AIDS. And they did so many more community services, uh, funeral services, but he was always, and he still is, he's always so grounded and centered and he just fearlessly does the work. He he gave out way before, way before it was legal, even way before even medical marijuana was legal in California, he gave out marijuana on the steps of the church to men suffering with AIDS because it helped their appetite. I mean, he just did that. He just, and he still does that. He's still an amazing man and an amazing minister. So he's someone that I, I try to emulate. And we're good friends. Um, and uh, so that's someone who I try to emulate. Anybody who's doing, you know, I look up to anybody who's doing the work authentically and uh, they make me want to be better. I don't know if I want to emulate them, but they make me want to be better.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, thank you for that. And then we've got about 10 or so minutes left. If you have anything else that you want to speak on that you think I've missed out on or any other experiences that you think are important to the, the oral history project.
1: I don't think you can underscore the impact AIDS had on the queer community and on the queer churches or open and affirming churches. Um, I lost thirty three friends to AIDS. I did scores and scores of memorial services. As I said, I sat with you know many dying young men younger than me, um, and that was tr- that. And that was in a time when evangelicals were saying, you know, AIDS is God's gifts to gays. Of course, we always said then the lesbians must be really chosen because we had such a low, low transmission rate. But, um, you know, so that, you know, the Amendment 2 thing happened in 1992 in the midst of an AIDS crisis, which was already demoralizing to, 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 to gay men in particular, but to the whole queer community. I mean, just to, I, I, I'm, I'm like, I would say that I'm post rainbow, like I don't have a rainbow sticker on my car because I'm like so over it in some ways. It's like, I don't need that type of identity. But then when I first came here in 1994, I had a rainbow sticker and a clergy sticker on my car. And you know, people would just honk and wave. It's like, oh my God, there's a, somebody who either is queer and clergy or they're okay with that. And just driving down the street with those stickers on my car was such an act of justice and visibility. And people saw it and noticed, so that was um uh, super powerful and uh um, and yeah so AIDS was my um was my theological formation mm-hmm. and uh and so many for so many people and I feel like now like i've my son who's who's gonna be twenty five on Tuesday, and I love to watch the musical reps, like we sing along you know. And, like, I can't watch it, though, without crying, because it's like, this was my life, right? And I feel like, almost like my generation, we're like Holocaust survivors, but we never told our children. Like, we lived through this horrible, horrible thing. It's always right there, but our children don't know. So, that's kind of the big thing.
0: Um. Yeah, feel free to take a few moments. Uh, I also, if you feel willing to share um, just, uh, you could tell us a bit about um, your family and your son. I, I never, I didn't, I wasn't aware that you had um, a son. Uh, so yeah, just like, do you have any other children or do you have a partner?
1: I don't have a partner. I was in a relationship, uh, a lesbian relationship uh, in which I got pregnant with, with our son and uh, through alternative insemination. And uh, and we broke up. We were together seven years, we broke up. When he was about two and a half, uh, we're still friendly. We shared custody. That was back in the day when uh, non-birth parents could not be on the birth certificate. So now in Colorado, if you're in a lesbian relationship and one of you has a baby, the other one can be put on the birth certificate as well. So is it kind of like how they would do a step-parent adoption, right? Um, but back in that day, really my ex had, would have had no rights, but ethically, you know, I, I wouldn't do that. So he's actually at her house now. Um, we kind of have been trading off during this pandemic time. He was going to college and now he's not. I, is CC open or are they closed? Or how, are, how is that working?
0: It's definitely a middle of the road kind of thing. Right now, I think we're officially online. Uh, my class is all online, but I think in the next couple of months, they'll have some in-person lab classes. But, yeah. How, what about your son's college?
1: It's, they're open, uh, but he's choosing not to be there this semester. So uh, um, He's a great guy, though. He's, he's, uh, um, he's super aware, you know, when he was like 10... He was going. He had a little friend coming home from school for a play date. This was with my my ex, but she told me the story that this friend said to Kim. So now you're gay, and Sam said, "Actually, she's a lesbian. Women who love women are lesbians, and men who love men are gay." And this, his friend said, "So if you're a lesbian, does does that make Sam gay?" And Sam said, "Actually, I haven't decided yet." So I mean, just to think at ten, you knew you there was more than one option, right? When it, when when he was like. 13 or 14, he was asking about dating. He said, Mom, would you let me date now? And I said, Well, if by dating you mean, you know, I'd drop you and somebody off at the movies and pick you up later, or they could come over for dinner, or, you know, you'd go to school dances. Yeah. I said, You know, dating at your age is really more about getting used to what it feels like to to be attracted to someone um, and also getting your heart broken or breaking somebody else. You know, you're not supposed to find your forever love, you know, at 13. And I said, do you think, I, I, I said, is there anyone you're interested in? He goes, not really. And I said, well, do you think you'll be more interested in, in girls or boys? And he said, I don't know. And he thought for a moment and he said, actually, I think I'll be more interested in girls, but I'll always be very supportive of the gay and lesbian community. <laughs> so We're just girls. A, I know, right? <laughs> he's just a great, great guy. Um, so, yeah, that's my family. I'm single. I've been single for quite a while now. Um, It's hard, you know, it's hard, it's hard to be a minister's spouse. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just, it's different from any other job, and like the weekends aren't free, and there's evening meetings, or there's emergencies where you might have to leave a a party or an event, you know, and so it's always been an issue in my relationships, me being a minister, so. um, I mean, I've dated throughout the years, but not anything, you know, serious, so.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you, are your partners generally part of the church as well? Have, like historically have, have they also, you know, been a member of the same faith or is that also kind of a difference between you two?
1: Um, so when I became a minister, I was in a relationship with a woman who didn't know I was going to become a minister. And so she, she was, a, she had been a part of the church and then we broke up. Then Kim and I got together, Sam's other mom, uh, and, you know, we began dating, I was on staff, I was just a staff minister, assistant minister, so it wasn't, and she, and she was friends, uh, friends of mine, so she simultaneously began to come to the church when we began dating, mm-hmm. and then uh, most, otherwise, I don't, I mean, I would, um, the women I've dated have not been members of the church. Mm-hmm. They might choose to come, but, you know, it's just generally not a it's kind of like one of those boundary things, right? Mm-hmm. Where professors don't date students, <laughs> ministers don't date congregants. So,
0: I yeah, I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. Do you do you know your congregants very intimately, or is it more of like a work relationship? Oh.
1: I would say both. I'd say it's um, um, like they're like they know they know a lot about me, right? I when I preach, I I don't share inappropriately, but you know I do share. Times that I've been afraid or sad or, you know, when my brother killed himself. I, you know, know, I've talked about that after, you know, you have to be, the maxim is to always preach from your scars and not your wounds, right? Because you you want them to take care of you. But, um, and I know a lot of congregants, I mean, through conversations or through times where they've wanted to come talk with me as the minister, you know, I'd say, I'd say they, that we know one another pretty well, Mm -hmm. but not inappropriately.
0: Mm-hmm. um so we've got like three minutes left I do want to have talk a little bit off the record too but um, is there anything else you'd like to contribute to the, the oral history project
1: no I think that's good thank you for asking me
0: awesome. so let me just-